Hello, everyone. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 17. Very good. Yes. Number 17 already. We can't believe it. We, we just started in March and we have nearly 20 episodes and the year is nearly done. Yeah, Crazy. so much more exciting stuff coming up, but thanks for sticking for the first 20. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. Without further ado, we would like to welcome our beautiful Parisian guest, Anne-Law. Anne-Law is a French civil and architectural engineer, and she has been in Australia since 2015. She moved to Australia because she fell in love with Melbourne when she was doing her exchange program back in 2008, and she had visited Melbourne at the time. And while she was in France, she practiced as an ESD consultant, which for anyone wondering what ESD means, it is ecologically sustainable design. But in Australia, she moved from ESD to facade engineering. So she'll be sharing a little bit about how having that dual degree in both civil and architectural actually comes you know, in handy in so many different ways and opens up different sort of pathways and and thinking uh you'll be finding that super interesting as well she also has this crazy counterintuitive will blow your mind away background because yeah it's nothing like we've ever heard before she actually started roller derby back in 2013 in france practically fell in love with the sport so when she moved to melbourne had to keep going and joined the victorian roller derby league and she got selected into this C team, which was the notorious VICs in 2016, and then moved her way up to the B team, the Queen Bees. And in 2017, she got selected into the A team, the All Stars, which were the number one team in the world at the time. Now we'd like to take you to the woman herself, Anne Law. Welcome, Anne. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. And let's just get started into this. So we believe um, a lot of our trajectory in life and where we end up, you know, lies in our childhood. And so if you could just take us back and tell us a little bit about yourself, that would be really amazing. I'm from France, as you can probably pick up with the accent. I'm from Paris. I studied engineering and architecture there. I've got master's degrees in both engineering and architecture. I work as a facade engineer in Melbourne. And uh, like I said, I was working as an ESD consultant in Paris as well beforehand, moved to Australia in 2015. I started Roller Derby in 2013. Um, and the Melbourne team used to be number one in the world. So when I moved to Melbourne at the time, I joined them and slowly got better training with them. And uh, eventually in 2017 onward until uh, 2019, I traveled internationally, mainly to the US um, and mm. also within Australia interstate uh, to play games and yeah, play at the highest level. Wow. How was growing up in Paris? I went there in July and it was beautiful. I think it's one of my favorite cities in the world. <laughs> I'm going to be very disappointing because uh, uh, Paris is great as a tourist. I enjoy going back now as a tourist. Living there, though, is uh, not as good. Also, because I didn't grow up in Paris itself. I grew up in the suburbs. It's like Dandenong from Melbourne. I don't know if that... No, wow. Logan from okay. Brisbane. Yeah. I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. So not very... <laughs> not as exciting. Um, look, it was... It was fine. It was fine. I was, you know, I grew up in middle middle class area. Uh, diversity was a lot bigger than what it is in Australia in general. Yeah, it was it was great. Although France in general, to be honest, is 
to I find is a lot more sexist than than Australia. At least more open about it. Australia is a bit more subtle. You still have sexist guys all around, but yeah, it was to me anyway. It, coming here was like a relief, just because of the street harassment. I don't know if mm. you experienced that when you were in Paris, but you don't. You every time you go out, there's gonna always gonna be a guy that's gonna talk to you. You know, they never. If you just make eye contact, they're gonna think that that's their good reason to speak with you. So yeah, you you have to. I grew up with that. Yeah, and I also grew up with two older brothers uh, that made me really strong because uh, I had to fight literally <laughs> with them. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like tell us a little bit more about you. Um, I guess your childhood and growing up with two brothers. Look, my brothers were uh, let's just say tough love, right? So they, that's you know, I'm a strong personality, and I think partly because of my grandmother, who's also very strong, and my mom, and all of that, but also because well, I had to fight just literally even for food, like. <laughs> If I did, <laughs> so it was like, uh, you know, on the table, they would get the best piece. If I, if I didn't fight, I wouldn't get, you know, I would get the shitty leftovers. So, yeah, that was just, you know, this sounds makes rough. you strong. It makes you strong and makes you learn how to fight for yourself. Character building, for sure. I yeah. do have a brother and I grew up with a few cousins, male cousins. And yeah. Yeah, I agree. You you do build up um, thicker skin. <laughs> they pick on you too much. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Look, I'm grateful for it now because, like, I don't take any shit from anyone. But yeah, that was a that was a tough uh, tough learning. <laughs> Holy moly! Right. I am curious. Sorry, a little bit about the Paris part and like you know the sexism on the street. Was there like um, just people reaching, like coming up to you, or is there like cat calling? Is that a thing? Oh, both. Just out in the street. Both. both. Okay. So they like you walk on the street yeah. and whatever you wear, right? Whatever you wear, they're like, um, you know, it's like whistle or like, uh, um, uh, you know, a oh, hi girl, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, and I've been followed a couple of times in public transport. Once I was, you know, it was a guy sitting across, across me and then he was putting his hands between my, he was sitting with his elbows on his knees and then his hands were like literally between my knees. He was like starting to rub his hands against my knees so I kind of push him over. Then he eventually left. But then a couple of stops later when it was actually my stop, come off, leave the train station. And at some point I turned around and turned around and the same guy was there. And I walked up to my place and then um, getting there, there was like a code, uh, you know, a, a door, locked door with a code, but it was glazed, go through it. And then the moment it locked, I turned around and the guy was there, right? And then I got into my, in my apartment and then literally did not even switch off the light and just stay there in the dark for like hours until he left and uh, yeah that was one of them the other time it was a different place the guy followed me they stopped me in the street and be like hey how you going you know and like literally stops put himself in front of me and I was like oh do you want to chat I'm like no I'm not interested he's like oh I want to be friends I'm like I've got enough friends mate I'm not interested and then you know all of this happening I was still walking because if you stop then it's the end of it so you've got to keep walking the guy kept following me and trying to chat with me until I you know I was seeing that I was getting closer to my place and then this time around I actually stopped turn around be like what do you want are you just going to follow me up to my place quite aggressively and that was enough for him to stop 
but yeah, it's it's you know, and the, the stories like that you you know, and you also have the when you I I never actually I experienced it only once, lucky me. But you also have when you go on a public transport, it's very famous there. Yeah, we call them the frotter, uh, which is rubbing. So the guy that when it's really packed, they go against you. They fucking sorry, oh f word. Um, they rub yeah. their <laughs> private parts against you. Um, oh, if not gosh. more, oh, I've been pretty lucky on that side. As in, it's happened to me once, and it's never been. It was, I think, it was just a hand when it happened. But like, I've got some friends that had okay. pretty terrible stories there. You said um, it's regardless of what you wear. That's like goes against you know anything people say that oh you know if you dress up nicely like you, you ask know, for it's it. kind of their fault you know yeah exactly yeah. exactly. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They see you as a target, whatever you wear. They see you. They see you as a target. And um, if I, I find that you know, because I grew up in a pretty rough suburb, right? I had to deal with uh, you know dodgy people around me from a very early age. So I beat up that face that I really have to be quite aggressive in my in the way I looked, and um, that actually protected me because they could see they they couldn't you know mess up with me. I know some friends that didn't don't have the same experience, probably a bit more like you know shy or anything like that. They've had more experience, more experience of this type of behavior, and I'm sure that's all about power. That's all about power. They see you're not strong, they will go for you. Hundred percent. It's nothing to do with the way you look. It's all about power and and yep. control. That is awful. So, did you go to university in that same? location yeah. or yeah, no okay. so uh, it was it was like yeah the equivalent of Dendron from melbourne but um then versailles have you ever heard of versailles yeah yes. like the big the castle and all that. so i was living yes. <laughs> that's right yeah. Yeah. i was living 20 like maybe 15 20 minutes away from there right that's where i grew mm-hmm. up then i spent two years there uh very different um, very very different um, environment because Versailles is very very Christian conservative. Oh, so okay. me coming from like a really dodgy rough area um, with very big diversity, coming to Versailles where they're all like pretty much white Christians, you know, um, mm. conservative people. That was a big change for me. Um, so I did two years there, and then in France you've got that thing like when you want to do an engineering degree, we've got what we call the Best, the, the royal path it's called that would be the, the you know direct translation it's like when you're one of the best you would follow that path so you got two years of what we call preparatory class it's literally just physics and math class all week for like 35 hours you've got an exam for four hours every saturday morning and you have no life whatsoever for two years oh. literally no life you don't go out you just study you know, from 7 a.m. in the morning to 11 p.m. at night. And then at the end of those two years, you have that, like, national examination that's like a competition. And whoever gets the best grade can pick the best uni or pick the uni they want, really. And obviously, they just pick the best ones. And then, you know, the less uh, good the results are, the, you know, less good unis you can get. So I did those two years in in Versailles. I did the examination competition exam thing uh didn't get the best grades but then i already had in mind to do the engineering and architectural double degree so i actually picked the one uni that was offering it um 
I could go there because he was not one of the top ones, but he was good enough for me anyway. And then from there, I did so three years of engineering, masters of engineering at the same time as three years of bachelor of architecture. And then I did another three years. I did two years of masters of uh, uh, architecture. You say that you already knew what you wanted to do, um, like for your career. Um, how did you know and how did you discover that that was sort of like the mix that you wanted to do, especially because engineering and architecture are a little bit different, but they do, like, it's really important that an architect knows about engineering and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So first, the two unis were both in Paris, Paris. So in um, in high school, I had that specialization. So when you enter high school, which is your 10 to 12 in Australia, Um, you have to kind of start picking where you want to go. It's either you you like literature and art and all of that or like business, all that kind of thing, or engineering and math. So I went through engineering and math and my specialization there was what we called engineering science. And it was all about, uh, there was a bit of programming. There was a bit of like robot building, a bit some robots there. Mm -hmm. There was some mechanical engineering. There was a bit of everything, right? Through those three years, I knew that This is this was my thing, but I've always also been into art stuff. I like drawing, uh, I like music, you know, all that kind of thing. So after you know reaching year twelve, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I did my uh, VC, I think it's called in in Victoria. I don't even know what's the name in in the other states, but I did my VC. I had good grades. And then the good thing about that preparatory class is that it remains still fairly general. So you can still, mm. you know, it's still just physics and math and you don't specialize in anything. So I did those two in specialization in like, um, I mean, it was like physics, chemistry and, and math pretty much. And um, during those two years, during the summer break, I actually did an internship at an architect firm that my dad knew for like two weeks because I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do car design because that was also something that I was interested in, or, you know, going into construction. So these two um, weeks with that architects who made me draw a little bit, who made me, took me on site, you know, all that kind of thing. I was like, yeah, I really enjoy that. I think that's what I want to do. But because I liked engineering as well, I didn't really want to pick between the two. And yeah. that double degree was kind of like the obvious choice for me. Yeah. So was your father a, an architect? Did he? My father is a civil engineer. Oh, your dad is a civil engineer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Nice. nice. Yeah, we are a, a family of engineers. My father is a civil engineer. My brother is a structural engineer. My other brother is a, a mechanical engineer, as in in cars. Um, my mom is a teacher, and um, I'm an architect and an engineer. So is that sort of where you'd say the exposure to this field came from? Yeah, I think partly. Obviously, he had the contacts about knowing an architect that could just take me in for like two weeks, right? Also, because I could see him do things and yeah. like, you know, he was in bridge and tunnels and all of that, right? So that, that obviously helped with the exposure to engineering. But like both, my mom was also very much into science. Mm-hmm. I think if she, her whole, her whole story is different, but like I think in a different time frame I think if he was our generation she probably would have been a doctor or something she went to teaching for different reasons but I think in different times she probably would have been a doctor yeah mm, mm, that's really interesting that you make that that comment 
Um, yeah. We're very lucky now. I guess not lucky. We just work really hard to get where we are as females. And yeah, it's good that we have the opportunities we have. Yeah. So if you were to describe yourself um, as a student, what would you say your strengths were and what were your weaknesses? Oh, I was very hardworking. Like, yeah, that, that, that I can do. I can ha- work really hard. Um, I fight really hard. I don't give up. Uh, the one strength, the one weakness I had when I was younger, especially it's getting better with age, was anxiety and um, probably being not lack of lack of confidence would be one of the big ones. Really, I never thought, like you know, in high school I was that kid that would get out of exam and think I ruined everything and like, I had a worst grade and you know blah, and then I get the results and actually I did really good. You know, mm. I was I was I was probably very annoying to my uh, friends' students at the time, um, but yeah, I was that, that person friend. that really had. Yeah, I was that one. Do, do you think you were like um, a hard achiever? Oh, I'm definitely a overachiever. Yeah, for sure. Okay, because it's never uh, good enough for me. Okay, and how how much of an impact has that had into you, like professional life, and into balancing? You know, like your self-perception and all of that? Look, my self-perception is still a work in progress. Let's just say it that way. But um, overachiever has been a good thing because, you know, I I have such a high standards in what I do that, you know, I everything that to me is not acceptable, when I look around and no offense to my male colleague, but generally still, what they, you know, my standards just much, much, much higher than, than, what theirs are so they seem to accept a lot more some work that it's just not as not up to the standard that I would accept for myself if that makes sense yeah yeah it does Mm. it has to be perfect it comes from my dad as well when I grew up you know it was never good enough so you know you have like 90% success uh you know you know 90% in a mark on a on a I can definitely say, to that. And um, my dad was like, well, you get 100%, you know. You get yeah. second in a competition, when do you get first, you know. So mm-hmm. growing up with that, that part, that played in the lack of confidence, but also played into the overachieving part, so. That's yeah. exactly what I wanted to ask you, because you, you did mention that there was like one of your weaknesses was lack of confidence. But was it because of the fact that you have such a high standards? It's like it's never good enough. So even though you are confident and you know that you can do it, it's like, it's probably not good enough. I I don't actually, interestingly enough, I rarely think I can do it, but I go anyway. Because, <laughs> you know, okay. I would feel worse if I didn't try. You know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's and awesome. I think it's really, it's really important to, I, I love that we are heading towards this um, direction because I feel like in, when we talk about bringing girls into engineering, and I was talking about this with someone last night, a lot of girls hesitate even to apply, or a lot of women hesitate to apply to jobs or to even enter the industry just because they think that there's better people out there for the role or there's better people out there for their career. Yeah. But you, you, you said there was something that tells you that is like, I rather give it a go regardless of how perfect I am. During my engineering journey, right, After high school, I had different choices. I could go what I call, you know, the royal path as going to preparatory class, then proper 
proper, it's not proper, but like, you know, one of the best engineering uni or go the easiest path of just going to uh, probably less, uh, how would you call it? Um, I would say shiny. I can't quite find the right word, but it's some something not quite um, perceived as good in France anyway as a uni. It's not that it's as, not as good. It's just a different pathway that's just not as perceived as good. Um, and that's the one I wanted to go to. And both my parents told me, nah, go for the top. You always have the chance to go for less if you fail. Whereas if you go for less to start with, you'll never know whether you could have done better. And I think that was probably a... a turning moment for me anyway because that's right go for the top and then you if you fail at least you can still you know go for less but if you restrain yourself from the start then you never know whether you could actually go higher right wow. yeah that is a great advice to have um wow me immigrating to australia was a similar story to be honest um i was done with friends i was i was you know the environment was just too stressful for me and also at work, you know, I could see I could never, you know, I could, I, there would never be any path up, f- wow. you know, and I would have been stuck in that position for so long before being able to go up because, I, you know, there's a lot more older people there and then held up on top jobs and they don't want to retire. They don't want to leave their jobs and their power. Mm-hmm. So I was like, if the top doesn't move, then under doesn't move as well, right? It's not that I wanted yeah, to go exactly. to the top straight away, but like, the next step was already hard enough. So, and, you know, also Paris was just too stressful. I, I had enough. And because I was an um, exchange student in the Melbourne Uni in 2008, fell in love with Melbourne. I loved it. I promised myself then that I would come back one way or another. And then mm-hmm. at the time, we decided, I, when I got with my ex-partner, I told him, you know, when we got together, I was like, you know, one day I'll just go abroad and work there. So it's either you come with me or you don't, but that's going to happen. And um, he was like, yeah, that's fine. I'll follow you. Um, and then after three years, two years, three years together, um, I was done. He was done. He was like, all right, let's go. This is time. It's either we get kids and buy a place and stay here forever, or this is now or never that we move somewhere else and try something different. So we decided to emigrate somewhere temporarily. We didn't know for how long. And then, you know, there was a few countries in the mix. Everyone in English-speaking one because it was just easier. I, I, I didn't speak Spanish. She speaks Spanish, but I don't. And then I have a bit of German, but he doesn't. So English was the way to go. And, you know, eventually we went down to Australia and New Zealand. And New Zealand was easier to get a visa for, in my position anyway. And Australia was the, was the hardest one. But I really, really wanted to come back to Australia. So we were like exactly the same, right? We're like, let's try Australia. And if it doesn't work, then we can still try New Zealand as a, you know, plan B. And turns out Australia worked and we never had to go to New Zealand. And, you know, if I went to New Zealand first, I would have never experienced the life that I've got right now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you're always one decision away from a completely different life, right? What made you pick Australia as when you wanted to do your exchange program? Uh, I've got a long like love with Australia. When I was a kid, I loved kangaroos and stuff like that. And then, look, I'm not going to lie. I'm sure you know of the show Heartbreak High. It was a big show when I was a teenager, right? And me and my best friend at the time were absolutely in love with it. And it's, it's, it's recording in Sydney. 
And uh, I absolutely love that show so much. And that plus Kangaroos, Koala, whatever, you know, I was like, yep, yeah, I need to go to Australia. So when the chance to come to Melbourne as an exchange student came up, it was you know, no question for me, you know, I came. And, um, you know, six months here, absolutely love the city. You know, I think what I loved the most was the chill attitude in France and in Europe in general, there's a lot of rules, a lot of, you know, you got to think, do things a certain way. And like, it's very restrictive. Whereas like here people are like, you know, that's fine. It's cool. You know, and I needed that. It's questionable in some ways, but for my, for me, you know, I really did that, that mentality for me to, you know, part of that me wanted to be an overachiever, never being good enough. He was like, nah, it's okay. You know, and I needed that for myself, and uh, that's why I loved it so much at the time. And yeah, coming back here, it's been, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy here. But um, yeah, there's a lot of cultural differences. Any that were um, shocking, and you were just like, oh my gosh, what is this? Apart uh, from the language, maybe because the language is always like the hardest one, especially the accent, Australians. Oh uh, yeah, the first time I put, I, yeah, look. I the first time I set foot in Melbourne, I I remember going to I had some nice books in a hostel somewhere in the city, and I remember you know I step in there it was five a.m. in the morning I was jet lagged and then the the reception person, you know, started having a chat and I remember they were like, "Well, so where are you from?" and I did not understand the question and I was like, you know, after like making me repeat like twice, I was like, "Yes." <laughs> you know, in the hope that I would work because you don't know. No, I was like, oh, where are you from? Well, yes, I don't know. Because <laughs> I didn't understand, right? Because, yeah, the Australian accent was just so hard to understand. But the English, I picked it up because I had no French friend around here. I picked, I had to pick up the English. The first three was, was, were really hard, but then eventually I was fine. Um, but to answer the question, the bigger cultural differences, oh. yeah, definitely the chill attitude towards things like. You know, um, something that I noticed also um, is, I think the pandemic probably showed that a lot, is the trust in the leaders. And, you know, in France, corruption and all of that, I mean, you probably know a lot. It's probably worse. You know, it's it's pretty bad, the corruption and all of that. So you don't trust. Not of, not No people have faith in their politi- you know, politicians. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you know, so during when lockdown happened and all of that, um, especially in Melbourne, obviously, when you had eight months, you know, everyone was following the rules, like, uh, like really well. Like, it was quite incredible. Whereas back home, they had none of those lockdowns. They had, like, maybe six weeks in April 2020, and that was it. You know, probably a rough, roughy way everyone had one. And the rules were a lot more restrictive than what we got here at the time anyway. Then it was a bit similar for our second lockdown in Melbourne. No one was following them. Like, people didn't really care as much. I have to agree with you in that one because that was one of the things that I also picked up on after moving from Colombia. It was, like, just the cold... I, I think, like like everyone is really respectful and everyone I don't know if it's some it's like a first world country sort of like thing but people just do the right thing like they don't get anything out of doing the wrong thing yeah so it's really interesting how how it works it was also one of the things that I considered I, I think there's oh. two reasons behind it I think it's the fact that the culture is probably a bit look 
obviously I'm talking about you know the, you know Aboriginal culture has been erased so Aboriginal culture is one of the oldest ones so I'm not talking about that one I'm talking about white culture in Australia is very recent compared to even South America you know because yeah. you guys have been invaded by the Spanish but much uh, probably a hundred years before Australia roughly maybe even before that so you have more history obviously in Europe you have a lot more but also I think there's a lot of inheritance from the British if you go to the UK they also don't follow the rules as much as here but like queuing perfectly and doing all the things perfectly and all of that is very British very British Mm. I would dare say even very English you're going back to your professional um I guess story and like why you chose the career you chose what do you think um like what's your favorite thing about having an understanding of civil engineering and architectural design or like architecture for facades specifically especially it's really good like you know facades is you know is pretty much as if you were designing someone's face right you design the building that's why everyone sees so you have to understand what the architect architect intent is that's really important you have to understand what they want you have to understand how they want the building to look like and then obviously on the other hand having that engineering background i understand all of the technical part of it so the structural part of it how it works i don't do much structural design myself i understand it but i've never actually put much numbers together Uh, more specialized in uh, mechanical engineering so thermal because of my background on sustainable design you know uh, thermal insulation condensation all of that that's what I do but generally that helps me in facade specifically that helps me having a better overall understanding of of what I'm doing right and that was the same thing for sustainable design back home. I would understand better what the architect wanted and also what were the engineering uh, requirements for it. Because at the time, you know, in sustainable design, it's not just um, it's not just insulation. It was, you know, when you look into a green star, green star certification, you have to look at a building um, overall, right? It's all about saving water, you know, uh, recycling, you know, uh, carbon emissions, Obviously, energy consumption or the whole the whole building, you know, it's a very holistic approach. That double degree really helped with understanding an architectural design requires, but also what are the engineering requirements? Because usually, architect and engineers they don't they don't understand each other. You can hear them all the time, you know, engineers you hear them all the time saying bloody architect and then you know engineers be like you know that's engineer saying bloody architect and the architect being bloody engineer they don't understand anything blah blah, blah you know mm-hmm. it's yeah so there's all and it's 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 across i mean in my experience i've worked you know with architect in the uk i've worked with people in switzerland in france in australia in new zealand there's there's like a lack of understanding they have to work with each other they complete each other but they, the thought process is so different. They really struggle sometimes to understand each other. Mm. Yeah, so like that double degree really helps. Almost. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I don't know. I'm using my whole yeah. brain, <laughs> and I just crossed bridges. <laughs> Other than the understanding, do you think like having that double degree has put you in like spaces that you wouldn't have gotten without it? Like, has it given you opportunities? Yeah. Yes, because. 
if I didn't have that, I think first off, I wouldn't have gotten my job in facades and I wouldn't have been able to jump from sustainable design to facade design okay. when I came to Australia. And the good thing is yeah. that back back in France, I I can build my own house. I've passed because, you know, you got a, a third, like a six year of like you practicing and like passing some kind of exam presentation to show that you can actually practice on your own. Mm-hmm. And I can do that too. So if one day I want to go home, I can practice as an architect. I can practice as an engineer on paper anyway. Mm-hmm. To me, that pretty much opened a lot more doors as to what I could yeah. do. And I also know that, you know, in Australia, Australia is not – one. To, oh, coming back to culture actually, Australia doesn't value a diplomas as much as Europe does. Uh, Europe is very much on, you know, your diploma pretty much – you know, it decides on your life. Whereas here, it's all about your experience and, you know, how smart you are and, and the people you know as well. In the network. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm. Whereas, which I prefer, in my opinion, because there's a lot more value to it. Someone that is not very good at uni can still be a good engineer because they're smart, you know. Mm. The double degree opened to me a lot more door back home. Here, well, clearly, um, also helped me stay i think that helped me make my cv stand out when i came to australia because i literally came knew barely anyone and just like you know send cvs pretty much to the whole city and hope for the best and i Mm. think the fact that i had that double degree definitely made me stand out and that's how i could stay what was the um driver between going from like sustainable energy or sustainable design towards facades Sustainable design in buildings in general. So first off, in France, it became a lot of like ticking boxes, right? Architect already had the design done and it just wanted you to look at the design and make it work so that it passes the the standards, right? Which became very boring because it was kind of always the same thing, right? It was always the same Mm -hmm. solutions. There was no design per se because realistically, when you want to do a sustainable design, you have to be involved in the design from the very early on process so you can include the sustainable principle into the whole building intention and, and design, whereas that's not really what happened. You were involved, you know, in like more like a, 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 a DD stage, so um, which really didn't, you know, it was not really interesting because like the building's pretty much the basis are there without you. For anyone listening, DD as in detail design. So I found it a bit, a bit yeah. boring and... Uh, on that um, Geneva Airport um, extension, I actually worked closely with the uh, facade teams there. Um, they um, and uh, because the, the airport was supposed to be uh, energy positive, as in pre- provides creates more en- energy that heat consumes, and to achieve that, you have to have an envelope that's really really efficient. So I had to work really closely with with the facade team to make sure it was designed properly. Mm. And I loved it. I was I, that that project was really like one of the best projects I've worked on, and partly because of that. So coming to Australia, I applied in both because I had the mm. experience in sustainable design, but also facade was really something that I thought would really be good for me. Mm. And uh, yeah, lucky me, Oliver and Peter Smithson gave me my chance, and I'm here now. Mm. And mm. I got no regret whatsoever because also sustainable design here. No offense to Australia, but the they're very much behind. And I remember coming here and working as a facade consultant, seeing the sustainable design report. I was like, okay, there's a lot of work. Sustainability is like one of those really 
buzzwords that we have in the in the, in the industry, right? Um, and as civil engineers, I feel like every time that you mention something about sustainability or, oh, we have to look into this for the project, everyone's like, oh, yeah. doesn't want to address it. It's like... It's always... It's, it's always the, the the rock in the shoe, you know? Yeah. You and, have to deal I, with it, but it's really annoying. Sustainability is different for everyone, and obviously sustainability is different for every industry, but I'm feeling like the one that we are in, difficult to sort of like achieve within a budget. Yeah, so, okay. Um, there's two things, right? That, people, <laughs> people in general, and particularly in construction, they don't like change, right? They just don't like change. And particularly in construction, because, you know, everything's streamlined and then changing the streamline means more effort, possibly more risk, more money, uh, all that kind of thing. So in my opinion, and that's what's happening in Europe, right? The change has to come from the top. And that, that applies for feminism, that applies for a lot of things. The change has to come from the top. So a lot of people criticize the European Union, but they drove that change a lot and look they're not the European Union in itself is questionable in many ways and you can criticize it and all of that but in France in general as well like the, the change came from the top the government implemented some um, some um, not, not rules but like standards uh, higher standard in terms of sustainable design which is slowly happening in the Australian code uh, sorry in the Australian uh, building code uh, the mm-hmm. BCA and that's the only way you can get there. And everyone was going to be like, oh, it costs too much money, blah, blah, blah. But then the moment it's there and people have to deal with it, the cost will go up at the start. But then because everyone does it and we're still in a capitalist, you know, capitalist world, the cost is going to go down, you know, because everyone's exactly. going to do They'll it and then it's going to be competitive. Bad, yeah. yeah. Yep. It's going to be yep. competitive and then the cost is going to come down. It's going to fall into the cost of everything and be a normal cost included in everything. And that's it, you know. What I'm getting out of this is that if we were going to place more importance in sustainability, it would have to be a push from the government and making sure that the standards are not just, you know, the bare minimum. It's making sure that they are promoting an actual sustainable... Yeah, and look, when you're in government, you, there's a lot of things you have to deal with, you know, lobbying, you know, and all of that and all of this, and, you know, you, it, there's a lot of politics involved. But, like, if you don't strive for better, once again, if you don't strive for, for better, you're never going to achieve, you know, the middle ground. That's, wow. like, the theme for everything. I, th- I feel like... Yeah, it, it, you have everything. to, you know, you have to have... <laughs> art, have yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> yes. I guess going back to careers and stuff like that i'll ask you um do you think if you had the opportunity to pick um another career now um like today if you wanted to do whatever what 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 would you do what would you pick oh i don't know that's a great question i don't know i actually quite like construction you know as hard as it is sometimes to deal with you know difficult people all the time but um yeah some kind of design i think Something that would involve something more like, you know, make it make the world better. That's, you know, that's something I strive for. And like, that's part of, you know, why I offered to be part of the podcast. Because I'm like, I want to show a different world to women, right? I, I don't have kids. I don't want to have kids. This is just not something for me for different reasons. But that doesn't mean I don't want to be a good role model. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't want to be a good role model, right? I've got two nieces. They're like 12. um, And I want to show them that something different exists in this world. 
right? Um, I've had very strong role model in my family. My grandmother, both both my grandmother lived very independently. Uh, sorry, no, my grandmother and my great grandmother, they both lived very independently. Um, and my grandmother specifically, she was um, a single mother at a time when it was really hard. And, uh, you know, she was a very strong character. My dad keeps saying that I look a lot like her, which to me, you know, it says that as a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing. Um, Ultimate yeah, exactly. Um, but like, yeah, I, I, yeah, she was, she was great. And she's not part of this world anymore, sadly, but yeah, she was great. Um, but I, I do, I do think that I probably would have gone to, Either sustainable design was kind of what it was, right? Like trying to make something better for the world and something similar to that. I'm not quite sure, you know, mm. but yeah. But can we just jump back to 2017? Uh, my limited understanding of facades, because I was studying um, fire safety engineering, but at the time yeah. there was like, you know, the Granville fire that happened and it was huge mm. and it like caused a big ruckus yeah. in facades. Did that affect the way uh, your like, uh, work is approached in facades now? Or? I'm oh, sure big time, something. big time. Um, so, look, okay. in Melbourne, we had the um, uh, lacrosse building, which was similar to the Glenford Tower. We had that in 2014. Uh, there was no death, though, mm-hmm. um, but, like, the whole part of the facade in Docklands uh, went, on, went on fire. And uh, because of, a, you know, it's a French backpacker that started the whole thing. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it just left a cigarette butt and then the whole thing, I think it was in like a plastic container. It took fire, fell on the air conditioning system and then the air conditioning system fell, you know, caught fire and then went, was next to the wall and then it went up the wall. Anyway, it, that was 2014 in Melbourne. So Australia already was having this kind of discussions at the time, right? Because I think in 2017, the trial was going on. And then obviously the Glenford Tower happened. The moment I saw the Glenford Tower videos, I was like, this is cladding. This is the facade that's going on fire. The moment, because, you know, the moment I saw the videos on the news, I knew that's what it was. And sure as hell, that's what it was. And sadly, though, they had so many new people die there, whereas in Melbourne, like Cross Building, they didn't have that because the fire safety design of the building was much better in the Melbourne building compared to... The Glenfell Tower, they had a whole heaps of defect there. Like they only had one staircase that was full of uh, fume, so people couldn't go out. And then they didn't have uh, sprinklers. Um, anyway, there was a whole thing. So it was not just the cladding, but that, yes, after that, Australia decided to ban uh, combustible cladding completely for a while. Wow. Then they allowed 30% polyethylene and all that. Anyway, there was a whole lot of discussion, but then eventually now a lot of my work in the last couple of years now has been about replacing cladding on buildings on residential buildings going back to construction and all of that um have you faced any hurdles for being a female um all the being... time yes <laughs> okay all the time Let's unpack we say hurdles to be polite <laughs> yes so first off obviously when i was younger um a bit less now because i've got more experience and you know, they can also see that and be more, you know, outspoken. And when you're a bit young, you don't feel as confident in, you know, and it comes back to not being very confident in myself, but you don't feel as confident to speak up. So they come to you and then, you know, like, hey, how are you going? You know, and like they try to, they treat you as a pet. They treat you as a pet. And as many times I worked on the work side and I was like, 
you know, the pet of the worksite. Not in a bad way, like they were not disrespectful, but also quite condescending. Like I was not very taken very seriously in everything I was saying, you know, it was just a woman, mm. doesn't really know what I'm doing, you know, I'm here to be pretty, that's it, mm. you know. Um, obviously, that hasn't happened in Australia, but that has happened in France. Uh, colleagues hitting on me. That's happened a couple of times there that I had to be like, mm, no, this is not okay. Yeah. Um, on worksite, I know there's been a big crack on, on it in Australia at some point in the past, uh, but in France it's not a thing. So when you go on worksite, being, you know, cat cold and whistled and all of that definitely happened mm-hmm. on the regular. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like generally... The basic is when you're a woman, people don't take you seriously. So when you're a man, by default, they think you know your shit or your stuff. Mm. And um, they think you know your stuff and they take you seriously from the start. As a woman, you have to you have to prove yourself. Mm. You're never taken seriously from the start. You have to prove yourself. And then once you've proven yourself, then they will listen to you to a certain point. It depends on the men as well. Some of them will never listen to you. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, but basically being um, <laughs> more outspoken just by itself doesn't actually do very much. Like just it, appearing. It more helps. Confident. It helps because it does help. It's helped because I've got some friends that were not as confident that got actually you know uh, assaulted on site back home. Um, you know, cornered and then being pushed on against the wall and be like, "Give me your number," and like trying to you know do kiss and stuff. So mm-hmm. that never happened to me. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that they just do it a bit more subtle, but it's still there, mm-hmm. right? So like competency and my, perspective. Yeah. Like they don't look at you as more competent just because you're more confident. No. Nah. Mm, okay. Nah. Well, I'll give you an example. I um, as part of the recladding process in in Victoria. Um, in Victoria, we've got a government organization called Cladding Safety Victoria that's been created by the Victorian government. It's funded by the Victorian government. And it's all about replacing the cladding, providing grants for uh, the buildings, in the uh, residential buildings in Victoria so that the owner corporation don't have to pay for it, right? Um, part of this program, I'm involved in, in, in different parts, but part of it is the Broadband the Clerk of Work program, which is... Clerk of work were around 20, 30 years ago in Australia, and they're just here. They're still here in France, and they're here to check that things have been done right, right? And um, so I've been leading that uh, that team as part of, you know, uh, the facades team uh, from the start. Um, and I, it's pretty much sending guys on site all the time. That's all they do, go on site and check that it's done right. So they go to three, four sites a day, every day. So because I'm leading the team, I go with them on a regular, right? The, if, if, they don't introduce, if they don't introduce me as their boss, I am almost every single time here to learn and I'm the intern. I'm here to learn. What? Oh, my gosh. Every wow. single time. It's, it's become a, a joke for me. I'm like, all right. It's funny because they think it's interesting actually. I don't say anything on purpose because then because they think I'm the intern and I don't know anything, they can say whatever. 
so it's good because I let them speak and then you know they kind of spin the, spill the beans on many things and then you know eventually my guys say well by the way this is my boss and they're like all of a sudden the face changes the tone changes and all of a sudden I exist right but if they don't say anything I'm not really there Wow. So it works in your favor for that, for like just taking advantage of their stupidity. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, because, well, I think they're, they're not all stupid, but they definitely have biased, obvious yeah. ones that, mm. you know, it's their, their own problem if they, you know, don't fight that and don't actually take the time to question what I'm doing. You just mm. assume mm. that I, exactly, you know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty rude of them. I was just going to ask, like you were saying, like colleagues, you know, hitting on you and, um, you know, you've had to deal with that from like a young girl in construction to now. How have you, I suppose, changed how you um, react to it when it happens or how did you deal with it before? Oh, um, when I was doing it before, I was a bit worried about pushing back. You know, you were a bit nice. I was trying to be nice, being like, oh, no, I'm sorry, blah, 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 you know. Whereas now I'm like, well, this is this is not acceptable. What are you doing? I called them out. I called them out on it. And, you know, if they feel uncomfortable with it, this is not my issue these days, right? That's that's the big difference for me. I used to not really have the confidence to push back strongly. And now I don't care. I don't care. This is not professional. This is not acceptable. So it still happens. Not to me, though. Not anymore. Um, also because I'm a bit older. But, like, my one of my colleagues here, um, she's younger than me. She's pretty. So she's she has stories about one of the guys on site telling her, oh, you've dolled it for me today, love. You know, that kind of comments. And you're like, no, man, I'm here to work. Leave me alone, you know. And, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Wow. So if you were to give advice to someone that was going to join in the industry, and and that's obviously one of the things that happens frequently, what would you tell them? How would you tell them to approach? There's two different things, right? There's the fact that you have to... If you want things to change, you have to say something. That's that's my approach of it. If you want things to change, if you don't say anything and say it's okay, it's never going to change. So you have to speak up. Now, the thing is, speaking up, you have to make sure you have the support for it. As in, if you do intern in a company and your boss doesn't have your back, you can speak up as much as you want. He will throw you under the bus straight away, right? And then you speaking up will look as if you're the difficult person, right? Mm. So speaking up is important. The way you do it is pretty much, I think it's the core of it. You have to speak up, but how strongly you do it is pretty much depending on the environment, right? You, I think as women, we have to protect ourselves and we have to draw a line in the sand. And, you know, all of the Me Too movement and all of that, I think, have changed a lot of things. It's not perfect, but the perception has started to change, which is good. Um, men are a bit more worried about what they say now. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, so now we have to be confident that we can now say something. Because for a very long time, we didn't have the courage to say something because we didn't think we would be listened to, right? Yeah. Now that has changed. Women, I will, I'm not saying it's perfect. I've had an exchange, interesting exchange with some of my colleagues just last week about listening to women. But generally, they're more open to it. Um, so speaking up is going to be the first step for the change. Then mm. how you do it will have to be a lot about the person you're talking to. Hmm. Yeah. Really. Wow. Like you said, the change really starts important. from the top down. 
it very much does it very much does yeah. um if the leaders are not ready to make any change then they will just look over they don't they won't think it's important so they will look over some behavior that are not acceptable so the person mm-hmm. that's having the problematic behavior will think that they can just keep doing it look and we all do it to a certain point right like if we yeah. do something that we know it's wrong but no one calls us on it yeah we keep doing it yeah. we keep doing it so yeah. you know it has to come from above it has to come from above if it doesn't come from above you can speak up about it but the person doing it if they don't feel like this is going to be enforced and you're the only one that's actually putting some boundaries not all of them but some of them won't re- listen to what you're saying and mm. eventually you're going to be the one changing job because you can't deal with that kind yeah. of behavior yeah wow um on another note <laughs> thank you so much for that advice um i was gonna ask you about roller derby is that how yes. you pronounce it <laughs> yes well i mean your friends say roller derby but you know oh. that's because they do the r they put a everywhere <laughs> yeah it's roller derby yeah so you started playing in 2012 right yeah yes and was that um here in australia i i no i studied in france okay. i studied in paris okay. um that sport so the sport is a female sport um Ooh. has been so it used to be around in the 70s and 80s in the US apparently it was even on TV at the time just before you know like wrestling and stuff it was very much a show and it was very much mixed gender it was male and female at the time it was really like wrestling you know then it kind of disappeared in the 90s and then early 2000 in Texas uh some women decided to bring it back at the time still at the, as a show but then because it was only women and they had that rockabilly um you know atmosphere and all of that it kind of grew and grew and grew and grew and um then the film whip it happened in the late 2000 and then it exploded everywhere right that's how a whole generation of women like me started the sport right because of that movie Thank you. Uh, if, he, if she ever listens to that podcast, thank you, Drew Barrymore, for doing making that movie because <laughs> um, we owe you a lot. Um, um, what do you reckon this, like some skills that you learned by playing that sport, um, have you been able to sort of like transfer into the workplace or even like your personal life? So roller derby is very much a feminine sport. So it grew me as a woman, it grew my confidence as a woman. And I would be a very different person right now if I didn't have that sport in my life. Um, I remember one of the first training um, I attended, one of my my um, uh, teammate at the time, uh, she out loud say, I'm a feminist and I'm proud of it. And I was like, you know, because to me at the time, <laughs> being a feminist, you could see, to me, I had, you know, and like a lot of people do, right? I had that cliche of like angry feminists, you know, don't shave, blah, 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 you know, always angry all the time and like mm-hmm. for, for, fight for the wrong cause. We all heard that, that argument, right? And okay, I was very so. much in that. I was very much in that. And that whole sport made me realize that, well, turns out I'm also a feminist, um and i'm very proud of it now gave me confidence in myself gave me confidence in my body uh in my strengths and uh like i said my life would be very very different without that sport that's for sure wow that's amazing would you be an advocate for anyone like yeah sorry um yeah would you be an advocate for 
anyone um, to do something outside of work, you know, that can cultivate a different set of skills that gives them confidence and, you know. Yes. So mm-hmm. I listened to your episode about that. I thought it was a very good one. Because um, <laughs> uh, being defined by your, by your work is definitely something that has its limits generally. And my uncle is very, you know, very good at psychology and stuff. He's always given me that great advice of you got, in life, you got to juggle between three different balls um, is work, family, and your own personal happiness, right? And it's all about finding balance between the three. And um, if you only have one of them, you're not going to be able to juggle as well. Or if one is heavier than the other two, it's going to be so much harder in general, right? They all have to be the same weight, all three of them, to make it able to juggle easily, right? And I think that's a really good image for life in general. Having a hobby helps you forget about work and having a hobby gives you different skills that you wouldn't get at work. Um, I'm a very, very strong advocate of that. Yeah. As a so, high achiever, yeah. um, hmm. do you think, yeah, sorry, as a high achiever, do you think that one of, like the analogy you gave, one of your balls just tends to become much heavier than the other? Like your work one, does it take up a lot of the sphere of your life? Yeah. I struggle with that philosophy because <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so when I was doing roller derby, became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I'm very competitive. I like to be perfect and be the best I can be. So roller derby took 70, 80% of my, of my life, right? Work was still there and I'm glad I, I kept work because a lot of my teammates actually dropped you know, we're working part-time to be able to play at that level. Um, I never did make that choice. I've been tempted many times, but I've never made that choice. But yes, uh, it became bigger and bigger. And I do think that I'm single now after being 10 years with a person. And I do think that's partly because of that time when I was a bit too focused on the sport. Um, And then after that, I focused... I mean, with lockdowns and all of that, it was not much you could focus on. But then I was a bit too focused on work um, because I wanted to perform so well and I had nothing else to focus on, really. So, I mean, my partner was there. But anyway, it was a different story. But, yeah, it's a hard balance to find and I'm struggling myself with it, that's for sure. Is that one of the reasons why you stopped playing, um, I guess, professionally? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say professionally because unfortunately I was not paid for it, sadly. Um, <laughs> but um, At a I, level. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I was skating. I was uh, skating probably 10 to 15 hours a week. I had three to four trainings a week plus gym sessions. Um, I was pretty much training. All of my free time was going towards some kind of training. Mm. And um, I quit. Partly because when you get higher, and it's true in all again in all parts of of life, when you get very high, it's true at work as well. You have a political aspect of it that I was here for the sport and I was here for the performance. I wasn't here for the politics. And when you get very higher up, there's a lot of politics involved, and um, it ate me alive that part. Also because, you know, selections were not necessarily just about your skills and that's something I was not I was not on with, I was not okay with. 
And uh, but also it was so much training on top of work, and I was not willing to drop my hours at work for it because Roger Derby doesn't pay. Mm. Um, I it was just too much. It's as if I had two full time job at the same time, and mm. um, I could not deal with it. It was just too much. So for those two different reasons, mm. I that's why I had to quit. I burnt out. Is what happened. Yeah. I burnt out. You chose yourself. <laughs> yeah, I did, and it was a it was a that's great a decision. Yeah. yeah, that's always a win. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing these stories. As a part of our podcast, and at the end of every interview that we have, we sort of ask a few fun questions, mm. just because of all the stuff that we talk about. Um, so, if you would like to play that with us, that would be awesome. Sure, sure, <laughs> awesome. Uh, so, Kim, do you want to ask the first one? Yeah. Do you have a favorite movie? Oh well. Other than whip it, <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's not my favorite movie because the way okay. they play Roller Derby in there is not actually quite accurate. But anyway, okay. um, I actually I think have two. Um, my one of them would be The Greatest Showman. I have a thing with oh, yeah, musicals, I and I absolutely I love, love that, that movie. One. It makes me so happy every time. And the other one is the uh, The Boat That Rocked. It's about um, pirate radios on a boat in the seventies and. Um, it's the same. I think the same producer as Love, actually. Um, different story, though. Okay. Um, well, I know you said that you growing up in France wasn't as good, but what were yeah. your favorite things about it, about growing up in France? My favorites about going, growing up in France. Oh, look, I do miss the food, that's for sure. Um, the bread. Ah. Oh, oh. It hurts. The croissant, <laughs> les croissants, les croissants, les croissants. You, you can't have a good croissant in Melbourne. You can have a decent one in Australia. You can't have a good one. Yeah. I think the growing up different thing is um, the open-minding of people. I think the fun and the jokes. Um, we talk more openly about things. Okay. Um, so while sexism and all that was not as good at all, um, I feel like people would talk about it more. Mm. Wow. Political correctness in places. here is a thing. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> we are very strong-minded, very proud, very, you know, uh, but we speak up a lot, we express our emotions a lot, whereas the English are very much the opposite, very much about controlling your emotion, uh, political correctness, mm. all of that. Um, that's That's something that I'm glad I had because I feel like a lot of Australians in general, uh, men particularly, they don't know how to deal with their emotions. Oh, can't we just like dedicate a whole section on that for this podcast and like bring you to talk about it? Yes. Today we talked about yeah. your story, yeah, we but then we're going to talk about how men just don't. I don't but do you laugh, think that element so of funny. just speaking up more is what makes people of, well, people, I don't know if this comes from England, but like the perception that French are rude, like, is it just, just the element of speaking your mind? Yeah, we don't care as much. Yeah, I, I do think mm. so. There's part of like the fact that we don't care as much. So we just say what, we just say it, right? We just say it the way, we, do what, we say it the way we think it is, uh, whether that's debatable, but we just say it. We don't care about the consequences as much as here. Uh, we don't really care about how it's going to be perceived. We don't really care about, you know, everyone else's uh, feelings in a way, in a way we think we just say things the way they are. Okay, this is another question. 
What is your go-to way to manage your stress? Oh, sports. Surprising me. I'm a very big, I, yeah, sports has been very much my stress relief for my whole life. So, um, when I was a teenager, uh, I was anorexic. Um, so a lot of anxiety, a lot of lack of confidence and all of that. And at the time I was doing horse riding, um, and horse riding pretty much saved my life at the time. Um, probably wouldn't be around without that. And, uh, ever since sports has been, uh, doing stressful time. So preparatory class, for example, was a very, very, very stressful time, very hard for me. And, uh, against horse riding was the one thing that I kept through through it saved me as well and then yeah ever since I get really stressed out very anxious and all of that going for a run going for a skate that's usually my go-to and wow. gets me yeah mm-hmm. gets me out of I that I have so many questions but oh thank you for, must do for sharing two. that um yeah definitely <laughs> definitely It's been um, such a pleasure talking oh, to you. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for accepting our invite. Um, it's really good to know that I work with such like nice professionals. Um, it's amazing. Honestly. So many things that we're having in common. And <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I'm you. glad that could be of help and like next year. Yeah. And yeah. you definitely glad. are going to now be um, role model. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I already said thank you like 10 times, so. <laughs> thank you again <laughs> well thanks for having me alright awesome. 